This is a reading from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Do you join me in prayer? Well, Father, this morning we thank you for the gift of your word and the ways in which it speaks to us. And, and God, we, we pray uh, that your spirit would, would move in our hearts, that he would help us to understand uh, what he inspired to be written here, and that he would point us to Jesus. Since in his great name we pray, amen. Well, I, uh, I have been, or at least... A few months ago, I, I was on a sort of, uh, well, not a sort of, I was on a dystopian novel kick, um, and I'm sure you're all thinking, me too, um, no, but, I, but I was, and, and I, don't, I don't recall exactly what inspired it. I think it might have something to do with the fact that it seems like people from various ends of whatever spectrum you pick, uh, everyone seems to agree that we are living in some sort of dystopian novel, and so I figured I haven't read a dystopian novel since high school, so I started doing it, and I went from 1984 to, to Animal Farm to uh, Fahrenheit 451 to Brave New World. It was really uplifting. Um, I, uh, that, 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 that previous kick has now taken a turn, and I'm now just reading 20th century classic literature, and it's probably healthier. Um, but as I was reading this passage, there was, there was something from uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm that, that I was inspired to think about George Orwell's Animal Farm and a particular aspect of it. Um, now, I'm going I'm to spoil the book for you. Just warning. Um, it's also 80 years old, so you had 80 years to read it. I don't feel that bad about spoiling Animal Farm. Uh, but the book opens with a revolt. There are animals who live on the manor farm owned and operated by Mr. Jones. And these animals are tired of Mr. Jones's oppressive rule, and so they decide to send him packing, and they succeed in doing so. 
And the vision, right, the goal that inspired this action was to establish an animalist utopia in which all animals would be treated fairly and equally. And while there's a, a recognition of the fact that you know, different animals possess different natural giftings, the idea was to create a society in which each animal is valued and allowed to flourish with no one under anyone else. That was the ideal. But as the book goes on, the pigs, and one pig in particular named Napoleon, which is a terrible sign to begin with. If, you, if there's a character named Napoleon, watch out. Napoleon ends up uh, sort of setting aside those ideals. And one of the major things, like these animals were trying to distinguish themselves from humans, and so they have seven commandments to sort of separate animals from humans. And the whole goal is we don't want to be like those humans. But lo and behold, the pigs become like the humans. And the climax of the book, the, the very ending scene, there are a bunch of animals that have gathered to, to observe a meeting between Napoleon and those darned humans. And as the animals are looking in at this meeting, they're all seated around a table, and they are unable to tell who is a pig and who is a human being. Dum, dum, dum. And there's this realization, right, that, that at the end of the day, they have not succeeded in achieving their desired end. They've simply taken one oppressive ruler, one king, and exchanged it for another oppressive ruler, a different king. And I think this story, and there, there's much more to it, but this story points to a very human tendency that we both want and don't want a king. We don't want to be directed on the one hand. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to feel as though we're under somebody else's thumb. But at the same time, we long for, we need guidance and direction. We long for and we need the care that comes from someone who is over us, who is willing and able to direct our steps in the right path. Well, the good news of this passage is that we have a ruler. We have a true king, one who knows us, who knows what we need and is able to guide us in the way of life everlasting, in the right path, in the way that we need to go. So this morning, we are going to walk through Psalm 2 together, and we're going to look at three points in particular because it would not be a sermon if there were not three points. So here are those three points. The first is... The human desire for autonomy. I think this passage uh, shows us that. The reality that there is a king. And third, the nature of our king. All right, so we'll start first with the human desire for autonomy. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 3 together. There we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All right, so before we dive too deeply into this particular point, just a few notes about Psalm 2. Now, with Psalm 2, we don't have a superscript. Now, a superscript would be a note at the beginning of most psalms that tell you who the author is and the occasion for the writing of this particular psalm. That doesn't exist in Psalm 2, but we do know who the author is because Acts 4 tells us that this is a psalm of David. And Psalm 2 is seen as a royal 
or a coronation psalm. Now, these psalms don't necessarily have a uniform literary structure. They don't fit into one particular genre, but they are instead thematically linked. Each royal or coronation psalm is about how God works through the office of king. And there's a specific context envisioned in Psalm 2 that that we see first. David is the king, anointed and installed by God to rule and to carry out the charge given to Abraham to bring blessing to all nations. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this specific king, King David, for most of his reign, was under very real threat. The surrounding kings refused to submit to God and his appointed ruler and instead have set themselves against him. But there's also something much bigger going on. Psalm 2 is quoted many times throughout the New Testament and is ultimately seen, in addition to being a royal or coronation psalm, as a messianic psalm. So David is envisioned in one sense, but ultimately... We look past David and we see Jesus in Psalm 2. And you can see that in the psalm itself. Because someone greater than David is needed to justify the full fury of the threats that are leveled against the Lord's anointed here, as well as the greatness of the promises that we observe here in Psalm 2. So in one sense, this psalm is written by David about real circumstances that he is facing. But it's also in a much bigger and deeper, truer sense about Jesus, our true King, the Son of God, whom we, in our natural condition, resist. The nations have and continue to rage against the rule of Jesus, and we plot ways to avoid it. Now, Psalm 2, in many ways, is connected to Psalm 1, and it's a sort of inverse of it. So I want to show you something from Psalm 1. There we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 2, again, begins with these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the word translated plot in Psalm 2-1 is the same word translated meditates in Psalm 1-2. So instead of meditating on the law of God as a righteous person is called to, we in our natural condition and the nations as a whole have a tendency to meditate on how to get around God's law. And the thought continues in the next verses. I'm going to read uh, verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, there's a desire here in these verses right, for total freedom, to burst the bonds that are supposedly holding the nations, holding us back, limiting our choices. And whose bonds are being referred to? Well, it's the bonds of the Lord and his anointed. Now again, this in one sense refers to David as the one who is called and anointed by God to rule. So so the people in surrounding nations in rebelling against David are also rebelling against God. And that is in view here. But again, it goes beyond him. 
There's something much bigger happening. Because the word translated anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. And as Christians, ultimately, we read, this light, we read the psalm in light of Jesus. So the main problem isn't that people 3,000 years ago didn't listen to David. It's that humanity has and continues to fail to listen to Jesus. Now, why did the, ma- the nations then and the people now rebel against the Messiah? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to a crucial word in verse 3. And that's the word translated bonds. Now, this can and often does refer to a yoke, the kind that is placed around the neck of an animal, a beast of burden, so that a, a farmer can guide and direct it in a particular direction. And why don't we want that? Why don't we like that? Well, the yoke ultimately is a mark of ownership. If I'm yoked, not in the the working out sense, mind you, but if I'm yoked, I'm not autonomous. I'm not self-directed. I'm not my own. And friends, I think that there is something deep within us that fights against that. And this goes all the way back to the garden, right? When God first made the world, he created the Garden of Eden, and that is where the first humans got to live. And it was there that they began meditating on how human beings can, can throw off God's law. Now, in the garden, it didn't take much meditation given that there was all of one law. And we read about that in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. This was the law that God had established. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die.'" See, everything was available to our first parents except one thing. God established one law, and there's a question embedded within that law. It says, will you submit to ultimate reality, or will you insist on going your own way? And what is ultimate reality? That there's a God, and we're not Him. That the one who created everything that exists has the right to guide and direct us. But when confronted with the lie that we could be like God apart from Him, you know, self-directing, autonomous, we believed it. And we've been trying to make that lie a reality ever since. The Christian philosopher James Smith has pointed out the tendency in our culture to equate fullness with freedom and to define freedom primarily, if not exclusively, in negative terms. You know, freedom means the absence of restriction. And he says that it's for this reason that we in our culture have idealized the road. He writes, from on the road to easy rider to Thelma and Louise, the road is a ribbon that winds away from convention, obligation, and the oppression of domesticity. On the road, there is space to breathe, unhindered by walls, and more importantly, unconstrained by their rules, out from the hovering, watchful eye of the man and your mom and Mr. Wilson next door. He adds, if we worship the automobile, it's because it's the glossy God that gives us our freedom. Now consider on your own for just a minute, have you ever 
fallen into that sort of idealization of just total freedom of the road, being able to, to escape constraint. I certainly have. I remember when I first got my license, I grew up in Ventura, so it's about two hours north of here, a little beach town. And I ended up getting my license in Santa Paula, which is a teeny tiny little farming town, uh, 20 minutes east of Ventura. And I went there because uh, it was easier to get your license there, which is like a terrifying thought, especially, you know, here's a, here's a license to drive this automobile that can kill you and lots of other people. Fun. Um, anyway, but I remember getting, uh, getting my license and getting on the road and driving by myself for the very first time back into, into my hometown and thinking, like, I could go anywhere right now. You know, me and my 1989 brown Toyota Camry that I got from my grandfather, um, her name was Boxy Brown. She was a thing of beauty. Um, I, I just remember having the thought, like, I could turn around and just, like, go to Mexico. And, like, no one could do anything about it. This is amazing. But so that, that vision of freedom, of the absence of constraint, just getting to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, I mean, that has been something that has been appealing to me for quite some time. But I think it's worth asking the question, is the absence of restriction an adequate way to define freedom? Well, Smith challenges that notion with this illustration. He says to imagine a group of, of teenagers swimming in a tiny above-ground pool. Now, clearly, Smith does not live in South Orange County, where HOAs would never allow for a tiny above-ground pool anywhere. But um, just for the purposes of this illustration, imagine a tiny above-ground pool, group of teenagers swimming within it. Eventually, especially if they're rambunctious, they're, they're going to wish that those walls in that tiny above-ground pool no longer existed. And they're going to test the boundaries of that pool. And if they succeed in tearing down the walls of the pool, they're not going to end up with a bigger pool. They're going to end up with soggy ruins, right? Friends, the elimination of boundaries for its own sake does not result in freedom. Often, it ends up leading to ruin. Why? Because it doesn't align with ultimate reality. And what is ultimate reality? It's that there is a king. As verse 6 plainly tells us, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this king is the one who made us. And this king who made us has opinions about right and wrong. He has thoughts about how we should live our lives, and He has made us to flourish when we listen to what He has to say. As much as we might desire autonomy, if we allow our desires to pull us away from Him and His loving rule, we end up in a mess, in soggy ruins. Now, if you're wrestling with that notion right now, before we get any farther down this road, I'd like to point out that despite our best efforts to be our own rulers, we always end up as subjects. We always end up as followers in one sense or another. As Bob Dylan has sung, you're going to have to serve somebody. Uh, he wrote a song, in fact, on this topic called Gotta Serve Somebody. And in it, he elaborates, you may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And James Smith, once again, musing on this idea, he pokes a giant hole in the notion of the road as freedom, as self-direction, when he writes, 
The road is already somebody else's idea of where you should go. The highway is not a blank slate. It's a network of channels laid down where many others wore a path before. The irony is that even when you're alone on the open road, you're following somebody. We're going to have to serve somebody. So who are we going to serve? Uh, there's a New York Times article a couple of weeks ago entitled the rise, of, uh, excuse me, the rise of the Productivity Score, which showed how across industries and incomes, more, employer, more employees are being tracked, recorded, and ranked by their employers, who often utilize tracking software to monitor employee productivity. And the article comments, since the dawn of modern offices, workers have orchestrated their actions by watching the clock. Now more and more, the clock is watching them. Uh, it continues, architects, academic administrators, doctors, nursing home workers, and lawyers describe growing electronic surveillance over every minute of their workday. They echoed complaints that employees in many lower paid positions have voiced for years, that their jobs are relentless, that they don't have control, and in some cases, they don't even have enough time to use the bathroom. Uh, one of the, the monitoring programs that, that is popularly used, it's called WorkSmart. And the article talked about how one of the developers of this particular technology, uh, within a couple of years of its release, decided to use it on himself. And he said that he became so racked with anxiety that he wanted nothing to do with it any longer. Uh, he concluded that the tool was powerful but dangerous, and he quit his job within a year. I bring this up to make the point that there is no such thing as true autonomy. Sometimes in lieu of an actual person, we're forced to serve productivity for its own sake. And if you're thinking, well, the key then is to be a free spirit, well, you're likely going to end up down a path that was well-worn by other free spirits. Right? There's, there tends to be lots of conformity in our non-conformity. And friends, ultimately, that's not the key. We are always going to end up serving somebody. But that's not a bad thing, because that's what we are created to do. The key is serving the right somebody. Not, some, not, not self, not some celebrity or influencer, not some earthly king, not even family. We were made to serve the true king. So I want you to consider for a minute, are you clinging to a false notion of autonomy, of self-determination, something that isn't actually attainable? Are you placing too much emphasis on your own freedom? And what might that look like? Well, when you read the Bible and you hear it guiding, directing, instructing you, are you open? Are you inclined to meditate, God's, meditate on God's law, or are you more apt to meditate on how to break his bonds, remove his yoke? And given that we are all sinful, there will always be things that we encounter in Scripture that make us uncomfortable, or commands that we don't like. And what makes us uncomfortable varies depending on our background. It could be the Bible's teaching on sex or on money, on sin, or on salvation. It could be the Bible's insistence that God needs to be prioritized above all else. Or maybe it's the fact that God doesn't promise a life of, of health and wealth and prosperity. The fact that God often uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. I know for me that is deeply uncomfortable because I live a very comfortable life. Um, 
yesterday, there was a, a church event at uh, the uh, water park in Ladera. I think we can call it a water park. It's a giant splash pad. Um, so a bunch of families with little ones gathered um, gathered there yesterday, and it was, it was a really good time, but I was sitting with, uh, with another dad uh, at one point, and we were like sitting in, sitting in the water. So it was a hot day, but so we were like comfortable in water, but not only was there nice water to sit in, there's also an umbrella in the water over us so as to avoid any further discomfort. Like, the, the degree of comfort that we, we become accustomed to living where we live, it, it's pretty astonishing. <laughs> but friends, like, that is not something that is promised by God. And I know for a fact, from personal experience, by reading scripture, by hearing accounts of those who have followed Jesus faithfully throughout the centuries, God often does his best work in the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache and loss. So there is going to be something that we encounter in Scripture that goes against our biases, that goes against our preconceived notions of what ought to be. Our autonomy is going to be challenged. In fact, it's going to be obliterated. So the question becomes, will we submit to ultimate reality, to truth? Well, I think that we should, But it's not as intimidating as it might initially sound when we consider the nature of our king, the nature of the one to whom we are submitting. You're going to have to serve somebody. And according to the Bible, the person to serve is the king. It is Jesus. And I think when we consider who this king is, we'll conclude that that is actually a good thing. Let's look at verses 10 to 12 together. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's call to us in this psalm is to recognize, rejoice in, and serve the true King, Jesus. And something I find interesting is that despite our tendency to meditate on how we might break God's yoke, break the bonds that tie us to Him, despite our innate desire to rule our own lives, there is this competing desire. All over the world, there persist these narratives, legends about great kings who work so that their subjects can prosper. These kings who come to establish peace and justice. There's the story of Robin Hood, who in the absence of the good King Richard, reigned corruption and oppression. So Robin Hood and his merry men, that's just a great name, Robin Hood and his merry men work to bring justice as they await the return of the good king who will establish it once and for all. This is also a theme in the nearly 1,000-year-old story of King Arthur and his knights at the round table. We see this again in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right? The last book is called The Return of the King. Now, supposedly today we are, are too sophisticated for such stories and legends, but they continue when the Lord of the Rings trilogy was made into movies, it brought in $2.9 billion at the box office. And now there's a TV spinoff, which I'm sure some of you are celebrating and others are mourning, so that's okay. 
But why is this? Why, why do these stories persist? Why do they have this staying power? It's because they're echoes of the story behind everything. When we look around and we see pain and injustice, we long for someone to come and set things right. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus came to do. But consider for a minute how he went about this work, how he exercised his dominion. Where does Jesus' story begin? It begins in a manger. Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born a peasant. And one of the ways that we know this is that when Jesus' parents took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him for the, before the Lord and to offer the sacrifice that was required by the law, the sacrifice that they offered, we're told in Luke, 22, uh, Luke 2, 22 to 24, was a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Normally, a lamb would have been required, but there was an exception in the law made for the poorest Israelites. If they couldn't afford a lamb, they could offer these types of birds instead. That was the sacrifice made for Jesus. So Jesus comes to us in this humble estate, and he remains in that estate for the rest of his life. As can be seen in this warning that he gives to a would-be disciple. It's like, if you're thinking about following me, just know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't own property. The king his entire life was content to wander. Now think about his interactions with people, again, as the king. Who did Jesus draw near to? Jesus drew near to the least of these. He, he drew near to outcasts and outsiders. These were the people that he made time for. There was no station, there was no crime, there was no sin, there was no defect or disability that could cause Jesus to avoid somebody. And even when it appeared as though he was being recognized by the people as king, right? Even when they clamored around him and, and tried to elevate him. As he was riding into Jerusalem, there's this, this powerful scene. I'm going to put it up here for you. It's in Matthew 21, verses 8 through, 8 through 9. It says, When the people were ready to spread their cloaks on the road and, and cut branches from trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna in the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Even at this moment where people are ready to recognize Jesus as the king, and all of these actions are pointing to that reality. Right? They're, they're spreading their cloaks on the ground as a, as a recognition of his kingship. They're putting palm branches. Again, a sign of royalty. Even as he's being ushered in in this way. How does Jesus come in in his moment of supposed triumph? What is he doing? He's riding in on a donkey. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is our king. This is the one that God has set on Zion, his holy hill. This is the one who gets to guide and direct us, the one who gets to tell us rightly what to do. But this is the way that he lived. 
I'm not one to relinquish my rights. I, I don't really, I don't enjoy that thought. I don't enjoy that idea. I don't really like being told what to do. But this guy gets to tell me what to do. As someone who conducts himself in that way, it, it goes from this like scary, intimidating thought to being so comforting. And ultimately, Jesus is the type of king who not only comes in humbly on a donkey, but this is the one who came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think this last point is the most important. See, the wrath of God is referenced a few times in Psalm 2. God's anger at injustice, his plan to punish those who prosper from injustice, But when it came time for God to pour out his wrath on sin and injustice, who took it? Our King, Jesus. This is the opposite of what we tend to think of, isn't it? For example, in our own country, the person who serves in the office of president, when they walk around, they are continually, they're constantly accompanied by secret service agents, people who are sworn to protect the president people who are expected to lay their lives down for this person. Right? There's the expectation that a secret service will take a bullet for the commander-in-chief. But Jesus turns that model on, his, on its head. Right? When faced with the ultimate danger, the, the just punishment of our sin, the wrath of God, Instead of demanding that his subjects sacrifice themselves, Jesus sacrifices himself for us. Again, this is the king that we are called to serve, whose yoke we are called to place ourselves under. While the idea of service, of relinquishing autonomy, which again, we don't actually have, but the idea of it is scary nonetheless, The idea of being subject to someone else, I think for many of us, is a scary thing until we consider who it is we're called to be subject to. Let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus took on our heavy burden so that he could give us his light and easy one. Again, when, I'm, when I consider who I am being called to submit to, the, the idea of submission is far less intimidating. And when I consider what he gave up to make me his, I want to respond in kind. I want to say the words of the great hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for the reality that you have given us a king in Jesus. He's not necessarily the king that that people expected, that we expect, but he is the king that we need. 
Father, we thank you for his example of love and service. And we thank you for the reality that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And so, God, I pray that we would see the goodness of King Jesus, that we wouldn't cling to false notions of autonomy, of freedom, but that we would instead gladly submit to his loving rule. Lord, work in our hearts by your Spirit to make that true. Help us to long for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.